Um, we realize that in any assembly where we have those who are present, who are of an accountable age, that there may be, uh, perhaps you came in the building with that desire to perhaps make a prayer request, may have made the wonderful decision to become a child of God. You may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You may be ready to repent and be baptized as they did on the day of Pentecost. Uh, there's a will, there's a way. Don't let that stand in your way. We'll be able to baptize you with no problem at all. If you're a child of God who needs to make some public prayer request known, Ken is going to lead us in the singing of a song. What number is that, Ken? 520. If you want to turn to number 520, if this is an invitation to which you need to respond, then we would encourage you to respond right now as we stand. I can get a couple of guys to help me pass out here for our class tonight. <clears throat> so this was not a class on there not being a uh, an order of services in a in a pattern in Scripture, but we kind of did everything kind of reverse tonight, and it was okay. It was fine. Appreciate all those that helped and were a part of this. We are following somewhat of a different routine than we typically do, in that we are in a a Bible class uh, setting for the next four nights. Um, you'll notice that the schedule is an hour and 20 minutes. Um, so lower your expectations. We're not going to be teaching uh, the adult class for that length of time. Uh, it is somewhat open-ended, but it will probably be well short of that. Uh, what I want to encourage you to do is to see the schedule. It's posted different places. And if you want to see where the rotations are going and seeing what uh, the kids are uh, going through. Of course, don't uh, you do that with a minimum of distraction uh, and also have that time to visit together until we come back in here in the auditorium uh, at... Um, I don't have the schedule in front of me. Does somebody see that? Is it 7.40? Okay, uh, 6.35 right now. So um, I did want to begin. We did have a PowerPoint, but I wasn't thinking about the... There was no st setup here when I made my PowerPoint. Um, we're talking about grace tonight, and I really want, if you'll indulge me, want you to give me as thorough and as comprehensive a definition of grace as you can, and you'll see why I want to utilize that when we get into our Bible class here in a few minutes. So if you were to de describe grace, define it for somebody who was unchurched, had no Bible background, what would you say that grace is? Okay, our uh, Emmy nominee up here, uh, Russell, says it's undeserved favor. He did a good job, didn't he? Appreciate that. What, what, those little kids are going to remember that elder up there uh, talking and, and showing that, uh, that leadership. That was good. Undeserved favor. What else would you say? Okay, so it's not getting what you should get. What you're in line to? Okay. We deserve that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a very painful illustration, but yeah. <laughs> All right. So not getting what you do deserve. Okay, Nicole. Okay. So there's multiple elements in that. So don't miss the great personal cost. Giving somebody what they need the most. What was the second part? When they deserve it the least. All right, so that kind of falls back into the undeserved favor. Okay. Okay, what do we, what do we mean by unmerited? Okay, all right, unearned. All right, so as the result of whatever one might do, that does not then make them worthy 
or to merit the deed that's done for them that they need. Okay? All right? What else? What else have we missed? Okay, so when I think magnification, I think magnifying glass. All right, so you're saying that when you, you hold the magnifying glass, something gets bigger. All right, so we're talking about God's love seen bigger through the expression of grace. All right, all of that's good. Anything else that it leads us to? All right, so all of this is good, but especially Dennis's answer leads us in the exact direction that I want to go tonight. I want you to hold that for just a moment. And, um, and I really hate to don't have it PowerPoint because I've been really good about this. I've got my second grandchild on the way. And I'm, I haven't shown any of you a picture yet, but I was going to show all of you one. Rich had a bowl in his mouth. He had it upside down. He was trying to get to the food on the inside of the bowl. You've probably seen it on social media. I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. I see it on the phone when Kathy shows me the picture. But it was adorable. And... I forgot how adorable babies, babies were. In fact, mine were never as cute as, as uh, Rich is. But on November 13th, 1993, God blessed us with a little boy. And on January 24th, 1996, and on August 14th, 1998, a third boy. Little boys and little girls add so much to a family. I mean, even when they're fragile and dependent and can't do anything for themselves, think about how much they add to a family. On the other side of that, in this congregation, everyone I've ever known anything about in all of our families, we've been down through this particular situation to where we have experienced a friend or even ourselves the loss of a child. I can't imagine the pain that's involved. In fact, wouldn't you suggest to somebody, especially if you've been through it, that it's a test of faith. To lose a child, an innocent child, in an untimely way. But that's a circumstance where perhaps it is a natural death. And certainly it's something that's a part of being in a fallen world. Can you imagine the test that... This was a test that was produced and introduced by God. Remember what I'm talking about in Genesis 21 and 22? What was the test? All right, so I want you to go back to Genesis 21 in your mind or in your Bibles if you have that there. And in Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah finally get that child a promise that they've been waiting for at the time in which God had said. And so the Bible tells us that Sarah bore to Abraham, or Abraham had a son, a child, which Sarah bore, and she called his name Isaac. And incredibly, when you get through those details of that account, you go to the next chapter of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, it's an incredible request that God makes of Abraham. You know it, right? Genesis 22 and 2. What, is, what does God say? Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. What else does he say? Whom you love. And there offer him as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains that I will tell you of. And it seems to me an incredible sermon is preached between verse 2 and verse 3. Now, we know that there's at least some time between the request and what we read in verse 3. So before he pillows his head or, or, or lays his head on a stone or however they slept in the patriarchal age, he hears this demand of God, this test. Take your son, this command. I don't know how he slept that night. I don't know if he slept. 
Don't know what happens in that intervening period of time. But it's incredible to me in verse 3 that the Bible says that Abraham rose up early in the morning. And he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the sacrifice and he went to the place of which God had told him. But what's Abraham's disposition as he is on the way to do what he knows his God who has made him wait all this time to to have this child. What is Abraham's disposition on the way to Mount Moriah? Yeah, Do you remember that uh, Isaac innocently asked the question in verse 8? Here's the wood, here's the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What does Abraham tell him? God will provide. Does he? Verse 13. Always. In fact, there are seven names in the Old Testament in which God is said to be something. He is said to be the banner. He is said to be the shepherd. He is said to be our peace. But here's the first special name for God. In Genesis 22, verse 14, The Lord will provide. As it is said, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, it seems to me that Abraham is looking at, I mean, rather, I'm sorry, God is looking out over a towering mountain of time. And when he does, he looks over and he sees a dark and lonely hill on which stands a cross. To Dennis's answer, it's hard for us to talk about grace adequately and appropriately without looking at the cross. And the incredible thing I think we're going to find in the few minutes that we take to walk through this, we're going to see that the cross is the provision of God. Even though there's the promise that's made... And the time that has to come, Abraham was certain that God was in control of the situation and that God was going to provide an answer. When you think about the Garden of Eden, God intended, he created the garden as a paradise to be inhabited by sinless humanity. And yet we know that that doesn't stay that way. And yet, even though man makes the choice to sin, I want you to look in your Bibles for a moment in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through verse 7. And if somebody uh, turns there and can read that for us, Ephesians 2, verse 4 through verse 7. All right, so in the early morning of time, sin ripped through that sinless paradise. But God acted in his mercy. There was a problem that God did not create, but that we find ourselves in. But God interjects because God is rich in mercy. Now the words that Paul speaks here are saturated with hope. It sounds like a song of victory, but the thing I want you to keep in mind is that Paul utters these words this side of the cross. When you're thinking about Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, they are one foot, one step inside the dark tunnel of sin. And the door behind them is closed. They can't go back to the sunlight of sinlessness. And so they can't provide for themselves what they need, and so God has got to do something. You know, our children tonight are going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through verse 11, that begins that God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So my approach tonight was that we can't talk about grace without talking about the cross because the cross is the provision of God and everything that you said about grace is going to show up in what we see when we study the cross. He provides the answer. He introduces hope where hope is not deserved. 
And so having the attention of Adam and Eve and the serpent and all subsequent humanity who are going to read Moses' words, we have what is said, God gives a promise. Anybody remember what Genesis 3 verse 15 says? God is speaking to the serpent. There's been, there's been sin. God goes and has the conversation with Adam and Eve, and then he's speaking to the serpent. Do you remember what he says? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. What's it going to do, the seed of woman? It's going to bruise your head, really. The idea is crushed. Look at Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul. The God of glory is going to crush the head of Satan beneath your feet shortly. He's going to bruise, or she, the seed of woman, is going to bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. I'm convicted that that's what the early church writers and the Old Testament scholars in the Jewish realm would call the proto-evangelian. The first gospel proclamation. The first time that the promise is made that what we can't do for ourselves, not getting what we deserve, that God is going to provide that in a plan that he has put into motion. And that plan's beautiful. That plan involves a love of God, as Jim says, that's magnified. We, want to, we can't understand how deeply and how greatly God loves But in the expression of God's love and his desire to bless us with eternal life, there's got to be a price that's paid. A cost has got to be affected. Somebody's got to pay it. Now, either we're going to pay it, which we can't do, or God's got to pay it. And if God's going to pay it, then something has to be done in our place. If we're not going to endure what we deserve, what's rightfully ours, then God's going to have to do it for us. Now, I don't know how we might imagine. Is there another way that could have been done? Could that have been done through an electric chair? Could that have been done by drowning? Could that have been done in some more benign way? Why the cross? Why not some other way? By the way, what was the cross in its day by comparison? It's cruel. It's, there's nothing more cruel. There's nothing more sinister. The uh, uh, ancient writers call it the death of a thousand deaths. Why not something less than that? Why did it have to be the cross? Okay. Yet, you know, and Jesus says that um, uh, it's compelling. It, it, it draws us. Jesus says, if I, and I, if I be lifted up, John 12, will draw all men unto me. So... The way that would happen, by the way, I think we mentioned this before, you probably are, are so influenced by Hollywood that you would not realize that most of the crucifixions would have been by the, the, the normal roadside. As people are coming out of the city of Jerusalem, just as you just would think about walking down a dirt road and there right beside the road, it's going to be a victim hung. Maybe those three. Now, we, we, we know it's at Gordon's Calvary somewhere on the outcropping of a rock, but that still could have been right along the roadside, and many believe that it is. At least in the Roman times, they often did that. So that the bystanders could come by, and it'd be right there, but they'd be lifted up above them. Okay, good answer. So crucifixion, that's it. Yeah, from the Roman standpoint, crucifixion was designed to be reserved for the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. Incredibly, ironically, paradoxically, you put the perfect Son of God who's never done anything wrong 
in a position like that. So again, why does God choose the cross and not something more quick and painless? So here's the question, why? Why make all of that something through which Jesus had? Go ahead, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I do. I think we get right back there to love. I think that's it's huge. Is there anything more? Did you have a different answer, Harold? So how bad is sin? Your sin? Bad. My sin? How bad is sin? How ugly? You see, I don't know that we can understand grace without understanding the magnitude of the How God views sin, a perfect and holy and righteous God. And yet God, with such holiness, is still providing a way for us to be made so that when God looks at you and me, sinful people that we are, he sees the blood of his son, he sees purity, he sees righteousness, he sees wholeness, he sees children that he wants to be in relationship with as ugly and as bad as the sin is. And so I look at the cross and I see something that's that awful. It tells me what sin looks like to God. And Jesus takes that. So I think I begin to, I, I don't know that I can really understand except conceptually grace until I can look at the cross and understand how grace demonstrates itself through what happens at Calvary. So with that being the case, I know you're looking at two pages worth of stuff, and I think that's the first little introduction line. We'll, we'll work through this pretty quickly here. Um, I want to give you five things about the cross that shows it in a demonstration of God's grace. Number one, God provided what we could not provide for ourselves. So isn't that grace? I think you've said it in different ways. God provided at the cross, through the cross, what we could not provide for ourselves. You know, the Bible often describes our condition before and without the cross. Can you think of, maybe you can't think of the book chapter and verse, but how does the Bible describe us without the benefit of the cross toward us? Yeah, be perfect. No hope. Wretched. Lost. Okay, condemned. All right, so we get the the idea. Not where we want to be, right? But God provided what we couldn't provide for ourselves. Here's just a couple I came up with randomly. It's not exhaustive at all. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, when we were without strength, your version might say, when we were powerless. Then you go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, and and Peter says that we were unrighteous. You go to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 19 through 22, and he says that we were alienated and hostile in our minds. We were engaged in evil deeds. And what's interesting, and I don't know about, uh, we will look at yours in Romans 7 in just a moment, but in the ones I just mentioned, what's interesting is when it looks at us without the cross, each one of these passages then points to the cross. Romans 5, we were powerless, goes to Romans 5 and verse 8. Uh, God demonstrated his love toward us in that we were, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is that talking about? The cross. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 3, where the apostle Peter says, Christ was put to f- death in the flesh to bring us to God. Or how about Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 22? He made peace through the blood of his cross. He reconciled us in his fleshly body through death. You know, it's an unmistakable theme when you read throughout the New Testament that we needed atonement, but we could not provide atonement for ourselves. In the Old Testament, there was a provision made for animal sacrifices that uh, 
took care of the sin problem, but was it sufficient? Why not? How do we know? The book of Hebrews is a great commentary on that. Hebrews 9, 9, Hebrews 10, 1 and following. There was a reminder made of sins year after year. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. Okay, so we see that that's not going to take place. So God gave us a Savior who in turn gave himself so that we could give ourselves completely to him. Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made us alive together in Christ that we should walk in the good works that he ordained for us. We couldn't provide any of that for ourselves. I wonder how often you think about Simon of Cyrene. Who is Simon? He carried the cross. Now, we, we kind of fill in the blanks on that. Perhaps we even sing a song. Uh, don't know that Scripture tells us that the cross became so heavy he fell beneath the load. It just says they compel Simon. It's a pretty good deduction, I suppose. He's been through a beating that sometimes killed its victims. And so here's Simon of Cyrene. Imagine, he's, he's unique in history. He's the only other one besides Christ to wear the cross. And as he's on his way to Calvary, I wonder, he's been scourged. A Roman scourging hits every part of the body. There's no rule that you have 39 stripes and that's it. And so he's been beaten who knows where. And now Simon's carrying that cross. I wonder if any of the blood of Jesus is still on that cross, pressed against his And as he goes toward the place of execution, he hears the yelling and the screaming and he... The mocking and the humiliation, he's, he's humiliated. He's rejected because he's got this cross on his back. And as he gets to the place of execution, he sees those hardened, hateful Roman soldiers with the hammers and the nails in their hand. He had to be disturbed. Wouldn't you be afraid as you're getting there even though you know it's not your cross? Don't you know he must have felt relieved when he was free to go, but Jesus was bound to die. And when I think about how Simon ran and had to have blended himself into the crowd. Simon couldn't have got on that cross. It would have done him no spiritual good to have stayed there and been nailed there. We deserved what Jesus endured. But if we'd have gotten up on the cross, it would have done us no spiritual good. So God provided what we could not provide for ourselves. Grace is a wonderful topic, but it's a costly topic. When we begin to understand the facets of grace and how it's inseparably joined to the cross, number two, God provided what we did not deserve. He provided a way for imperfect people to go to heaven. And don't mistake this. God wants us all there. He's going to go to this length in order for all of us to be saved. Before sinning, what was the relationship that God had with, with, with man? How would you describe it? Before sin. Huh? Harmonious? Walk together? Fellowship? How about after sin and before the cross? Yeah, uh, no prospect. E- e- eternally doomed. I mean, that's, we, we need to grasp that to appreciate grace. What about after the cross? What does God want to offer us, according to Revelation 2 and verse 7, on the other side of time? He that overcomes, what's he going to have? Yeah, and he calls it paradise there. And so God gives us what we didn't deserve. I don't know, uh, we got any police fans? Uh, not police, uh, we're all police officer fans. The peers in the room, okay, all right. Okay, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, as is always. Not a, not a blanket endorsement of anybody. 
Um, but, but Sting was the lead singer for the police. And I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of him holding his 1954 Fender bass guitar. It's brand spanking new. You've seen it? No, it's, it's, it's old and worn. It's battered. And, in fact, it was in Fincastle, England, in a pawn shop, and he had his eye on it for months. And it, the fact that it was so scarred and so battered is what appealed to him. He wanted to take it and give it a second life in, in his skillful hands. And I just learned uh, in, after I, I put this illustration in this lesson that the song Roxanne is not about a woman, it's about this guitar. I did not know that. But God wants to do that with us. We're battered, we're scarred, we're ugly. And he wants to give us new life. He wants to give us a second opportunity. Do we deserve it? Do we deserve it? Good as you are, all the good that you do, the best of the best, because of sin, you don't. But you see, that's what grace is. It's not getting what we deserve. It's getting something infinitely and eternally better than that. And so when I look at the cross, I see that the cross provides what I don't deserve. But then number three, God provided what we needed at the cross. You know, we can rightly cry with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 17, I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. We can look in the context and we can see what David's poverty is. It's certainly not monetary. It's not of influence. It's a spiritual destitution. And it's always been that way. And God has always provided the way for mankind. But of all the blessings and the provisions, the cross is God's ultimate provision for us. John 3, verse 16, we needed the cross or we would perish. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold received by the aimless conduct from the tradition of your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but has been revealed in these last times for you, who through him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your hope and your faith might be in God. There was a Japanese writer by the name of Uchimura Kanzo, and he coined the, the name crucifixianity. And he describes Christianity saying the cross is not merely a symbol of Christianity. It's the center, it's the cornerstone upon which the whole entire system rests. No cross, no Christianity. We needed the way, and God provided the way through the cross of Calvary. Caiaphas was no friend of Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter 11 that the Sanhedrin is in a quandary because Jesus is so popular and the Sanhedrin, that body of, of Jewish religious leaders, had to figure out how to, uh, to meet him in battle? Do you remember what Caiaphas said, the high priest? He says it's expedient for one man to do what? To die for the nation and not that all should die. Now, we have a little insertion by the gospel writer. He says, this he said, not of his own initiative, but because he was the high priest, he prophesied of the death that he would die for the nation. And not just that nation, but that God would gather from all nations people to him. Caiaphas was right, even though he's no fan of Jesus, in letting us know that God is going to provide what was needed. But then number four, when we look at grace and the cross, God provided what was best. The golden text of the Bible found in the end zones of football games everywhere is what? 
John 3.16, what does it say? Yeah, we all know that one, don't we? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know the rest of it. Think about the gift. What if God, in his plan, were to have given an angel? Wouldn't have been sufficient, but it would have been great. What if God had more than one son? To have sent one of many sons would have been... But to send what he did, his only begotten son, was a unique gift. It was a gift he had never before given. It's a gift that he could never give again. God provided what was best. Now to what uh, Russell alluded to a moment ago in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord, so that with my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... God in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. How? I don't know if you remember the Ebola scare eight, nine years ago. We even thought it was, uh, there had been some problems here in the States and that I think there maybe were a few cases here. It was going everywhere and the UN sent a, a team to Womigini, this little remote village. And they went in there, these workers, to try to, to educate the folks and to prevent the disease from spreading. And so they had on the hazmat suits and the, and the shields, and I know they had to look scary. And as they were going through to try to, to eradicate Ebola, they began to spray a disinfectant spray. And this is not a guinea problem, this is a human problem. And some of the villagers thought that these UN were actually the, spreading the disease. They had come in there to kill them. I don't know if you remember this news event or not, but they actually formed a mob and they stoned those workers. They killed in cold blood the very ones that had come to save. Don't you think about the cross for a moment. They killed in cold blood the one that came to save them. But the amazing thing is that this is exactly what God intended to take. I don't know how those Jews must have felt on the day of Pentecost when Peter's preaching Jesus for the first time, and he says that it was the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God that Jesus would be crucified through those wicked hands of those individuals. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Grace is God providing, and somebody, maybe it was Nicole's second part of her definition, that the very best that could have been provided for us at our very worst, and that's us in sin separated from God. Finally, God provided what he promised. Now this is huge because we're going to come right back here as we close in a moment to where we started. Solomon is one who's, who's uh, an example of one who says God has kept all of his promises. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 says that all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. You remember that God made two promises to Abraham, our one who had Isaac. And what were the two promises that he was going to make to him? I'm going to make of you a great nation. And what else? Okay, so we're going to put that in with the, the nation. Good. The land promise. What was the other promise? Yeah, and how was that going to happen? How was his name going to be blessed? Through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So it's really cool, and I and, and preached not long ago through the scheme of redemption. I'm not going to do that tonight, but I want you to see how God keeps his promise. Because of the integrity of his nature, you see Jacob and his household go into Egypt 
because of a famine. Genesis 46 and verse 3. Joseph is the one who uh, provides through God's providence a place for them to be. And then they grow as a nation and they become enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7. God raises up Moses and he comes and he lets the people go. And on the other side of miraculously parted Red Sea, he goes up and he gets the law. And now the people... They don't do it in Moses' generation because of their faithlessness, but Joshua and Caleb lead them into the land of Canaan. That's the land promise. And God is providing a lineage through which the Savior could come. And there are times in which it seems like that this promise is in peril. Any of you who are reading through the book of Ruth with me, uh, one of the great themes of the book of Ruth is what? Huh? Huh? Yeah, and how does he do it in the book of Ruth? What's our big fancy word? Through time and events, working things out. Providence. It seems like this is the end of the line, but it doesn't end with Ruth. What about in Esther's day? What's going to happen in Esther's day? Annihilation. But it doesn't happen. What about Babylonian captivity? When the people go off into into Babylon, see, the the promise is in peril along the way, but God keeps his promise. It stays intact. We never need to forget that God keeps his word, and the cross is a reminder that God does what he promises. So what do you do with a man who goes about doing good? Acts 10 and verse 38, who heals every kind of sickness and disease among the people. Matthew 9 and verse 35, who's filled with compassion. Mark 1 and verse 41, who's full of grace and truth. John 1 and verse 14, who's without sin, Hebrews 4.15. You make him a hero? Do you make him an icon? Do you make him a legend? What they do is they hang the hero. But in so doing, God provides the cross. And through the cross, he provides grace. Grace is a subject that should make us feel warm at heart. But it came at a great price. Thank God it was a price we did not have to pay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've been able to spend in this topic of grace as it's expressed through the cross. Father, thank you for the faith that drives every single person here to strive to live in a way that pleases you. Father, we are mindful that apart from you we're nothing, but that with you you've given us such a great identity. But more than that, you've given us a great hope. You have shown us the way to salvation and you have shown us how much you love us by the price that you paid for us. Help us, Father, to value our souls as much as you do. And not only to, Father, value that, but to value the souls of those around us. We love you, God, and we pray that we'll show that how we express our gratitude for your great and wonderful grace. So you have about...